Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication from the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing fraud and scams in the charity sector. And after that we'll be renewing your faith in human beings with this week's Good News Bulletin. But first... Okay, Rebecca, bear with me. Back at the beginning of this month, did you happen to open your Instagram account and see loads of people posting pictures of their pets for a virtual challenge that promised it was going to plant a lot of trees? No, I didn't. Sorry. Um, I I completely missed this one. Or possibly I was just distracted by pictures of cute pets and didn't ask what it was for. I think it's just because as a dog owner, you know, and and someone with dogs in the family, I have a lot of people who have pets um, in my Instagram socials and it was everywhere, all over my Instagram stories, all over kind of the timelines. Um, People were sharing hundreds of photos of their fluffy, faithful companions with a shareable button and the strap line, post a pet picture and will plant a tree. Okay, so it wasn't just look at my cute, adorable ball of fluff no. where people get very obsessed with their pets, which I love, I'm here for. <laughs> no, there was a mission behind it. And uh, this campaign on Instagram went globally viral. It got covered by mainstream news sites, including ABC in America. And then pretty soon, more than 4 million people were involved in this challenge within about 48 hours. Wow. That's quite a lot. Did you get involved? Did you post pictures of Panda? I didn't. I, I actually didn't because I I don't know why I didn't. Maybe I just had a feeling and, and maybe oh. this feeling uh, turned out to be correct. But no, I actually didn't post a picture of Panda because I was also like, I, I don't know what this is about. But anyway, it, it went everywhere. But there was a bit of a like, what what is this? Where's it coming from? Um, and, and anyway, after a day or two, this charitable organization called Plant a Tree Co, which uh, styles itself on its website as an e-commerce charity. I've never heard that phrasing before. I'm just going to put that out there. I've, e-commerce charity is not a thing I've heard of, but you know. <laughs> Maybe it's because it's American. So this American e-commerce charity called Plant a Tree Co put its hands up to say, we started this, but we actually only posted for 10 minutes and we did not expect it would go so viral. And now it's out of our control. Like we're a small organization. And they were like, basically said we had no idea this was going to get so out of hand. Presumably because they were now expected to plant four million trees, which is a, a moderately sized forest, I think. It's, it's a lot of trees. Four million yeah. is a lot. So you can understand that. Instagram, social media, it's very fickle. You never really know what's going to take off. So this uh, organisation instead launched an Instagram fundraiser um, saying, if you posted a pet picture, now just donate to our fundraiser. We'll use this awareness to make a lasting impact and then we will be able to get some trees planted. So I, I checked the fundraiser yesterday and it has raised a little over £26,000 in donations. Um, so according to the UK community interest company, Just One Tree, apparently it costs about a pound to plant a tree in this country. So that's still more than 26,000 trees. That's, that is a good number of trees doing good things for the environment. That sounds pretty good. 
Yeah, and and this Instagram it, uh, for Plant Trico itself now has 1.1 million followers, including some of my friends on social media who will follow it. Uh, so it also did absolutely masses for this organisation's profile. Oh, well, that's lovely. And, you know, that is the thing about social media, that some things do take off, some things don't. And, you know, they get to share the warm glow of doing good with so many people and update supporters on their progress, which charities will know is so important. So, So tell me about all these trees that are being planted, Emily. Tell me about it. I'm waiting. Well, Rebecca, I would love to tell you about the 26,000 trees that are now going to be planted. But here's the thing. (laughs) Oh, my hope's cruelly dashed. An Australian freelance journalist called Patrick Marlborough was so perplexed by the totally shallow nature of all the news reporting that occurred around this challenge. The fact that really mainstream sites like ABC News were just reproducing the information about the plant a tree challenge without seemingly any background checks. And in some instances, these, you know, very legitimate websites were also directing their readers towards the fundraiser saying, now you too can make a difference. Oh, and I could see exactly how that could happen so clearly. So he started on a deep dive into the plant a tree company. And what he found was that this Instagram, quote unquote, e-commerce charitable organisation has a history of using social media to run really questionable fundraising campaigns. So Planted Trico have said that they were raising the money on this fundraiser for a US-based not-for-profit called Trees for the Future. But when Marlborough approached them, a spokesperson for Trees of the Future denied they had anything to do with this organisation or with the campaign. It's basically an unauthorised fundraising campaign for them. Okay. And I mean, that is one of those things that, you know, it can happen legitimately that someone says, I'm going to raise money for X charity, the thing takes off and they haven't actually spoken to the person because they just thought it was going to be a nice thing to do and they'd make a donation at the end of the week. Technically, that can happen in a sort of legitimate way. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Unauthorised fundraising campaigns can be a thing. But these fundraisers by Plant Tree Company themselves focus around selling cheap necklaces, basically. So they sell a necklace and they donate a chunk of their proceeds towards charitable causes. And I use the word cause very loosely here because they have previously included, I will quote, Australian bushfires or Black Lives Matter. So they run these fundraisers saying we're raising money for Australian bushfires. Okay. I mean, to be to be a pedant, are you are you are you running money? Are you, are you raising money for more fires? Is that, <laughs> that's technically what you're saying. <laughs> to be an absolute pedant about it, right? And and so he he did a breakdown of the costs of selling these necklaces, and and he, just a tiny proportion of what is actually being fundraised seemingly goes to a charity that gets chosen at random by this company. Um, as for the rest of the money that's being raised here. Where that goes, who can say? Okay. So if you wanted to find that out, you might probably be best placed to ask the founder of Planted Tree Co. So by going through the records of the company, Patrick Marlborough found uh, the founder is a 23-year-old computer science student who lives in Florida and who has a known track record for running online scams in the name of charitable giving. Ah. <laughs> ah. Uh, and the first time this happened, the uh, registered address for his organisation was out of his frat house. 
his Florida, <laughs> his Florida University so frat house. That's so good. Yeah. So on Twitter, Marlboro wrote, here you have it. Everyone got suckered by a 23-year-old kid in Florida who is selling dirt cheap necklaces <laughs> at an absurd markup, claiming to donate the money to charity and then pocketing it. The actual investigation that he did is much more in-depth, but that's just a handy summary in a couple of sentences of what happened with this post a picture of your pet and will plant a tree challenge. But of course, at this point, this fundraiser has already raised tens of thousands of pounds, money that has been given by well-meaning people who presumably wanted to give a buck or two towards making the world a better place. And you could totally see how people would get suckered into this, right? Like it's, you know, and we've had, you know, legitimate charities doing similar things themselves. You know, we had the like post the no makeup selfies or, you know, that sort of thing, which I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of for various reasons, but you know, they were effective. They did get people involved. You did notice that stuff coming up on your timeline and going, Oh, why is it happening? So like, I can totally see that this, this could be a legitimate thing. And yes. Absolutely. And yeah. And, and again, you know, selling things and donating a portion of the proceeds to charity not necessarily a scam in and of itself that does happen this is so i think it's it's so interesting because it's so plausible but also seems like quite cheap to do do you mean you just need an instagram account and a postal address and some stuff to send out yeah i completely agree with you because i think you know challenges like this are so plausible because they exploit all of our really human traits so the desire for connection that social media enables, um, that kind of groupthink mentality that we all have around if you see certain people doing things, you want to do it as well. And that desire to be kind of part of something that is bigger than you are. And as you've said, you know, charities have run very legitimate uh, campaigns around this area, and, and so have individual fundraisers. You know, in May 2020, I ran five kilometres. Now, I don't run <laughs> I'm not Andy Ricketts. I'm not a marathon runner. I don't do it. I just don't do it. Running is bad for me. But I ran five kilometers last May, something I might never do again because I was nominated to be in the Instagram Run for Heroes challenge, mm. which I don't know if you remember, but it was like run five kilometers in the month of May, donate five pounds to a frontline charity. Uh, and some of the charities were like NHS charities together. They were Macmillan Cancer Support. And then you nominate five friends. And it set out, I think, to raise uh, £5,000 initially. And it, it just like raised, you know, enormous amounts of money. And that all went to the right places. So it's, it's what makes things like this so tricky to catch. And also because of that really rapid pace of social media, Four million people in 48 hours. I mean, you know, and people probably don't stop to think, oh, should I do a background check? If you see all your friends doing it, you just think, oh, well, yeah. surely someone's checked it out at some point. And it is to an extent preying on the trust people have in charities, right? That you see, oh, it's for charity. It must be a good thing. Charities are organisations. They do have to file tax returns and all of that sort of thing. So, yeah, it must be all right. Absolutely. What I'll do is I'll, I'll share Patrick's Twitter thread in the show notes in case anyone else is interested in reading him following, you know, this trail. Because firstly, it's a great piece of social media journalism. And it's also a really perfect case study of just how easy it is to A, pull something like this off and B, to get drawn into it as well. Because I think whenever you hear about fraud or scams, certainly for me, I tend to have quite a stereotypical view 
of those, you know, thinking about maybe people who are a bit elderly or not so tech savvy, really, that is not the case at all. Um, scams are so sophisticated these days. And as you said, Rebecca, very easy to do that uh, and exploit the name of charity to do so. Mm, absolutely. So the fundraising regulator offers advice to the general public around giving safely. And yeah, this is a lot of the obvious sounding but important stuff around, you know, checking the charities registered, that fundraising materials are genuine, that you're on the right website, verifying the identity of street collectors. And perhaps relevant to this case, it says um, to be aware of anyone collecting for something general, like, you know, this is for local sick children. Um, you know, so yeah, the regulator is encouraging people to make inquiries about what exactly the money would be used for and by whom. And you know, online, I think there's probably something to be said for demanding some form of proof from influencers, from accounts, you know, receipts from charities and so on. Um, I'm thinking particularly about the Belle Gibson case. I don't know if you saw this. This was a couple of years ago. Uh, she was an Australian influencer who claimed to have cured her inoperable brain cancer through clean eating, you know, which is eating lots of avocados and, and uh, nuts and things. And she amassed millions of followers and she had a book deal and an app all about her healthy eating lifestyle and, you know, how she was yeah, curing her cancer. Yeah, I remember this story. It, it was extraordinary. Yeah, and so many people, and, you know, and it had really tragic consequences that, that people stopped their treatment really? because they thought, yeah, they thought they could emulate her. Spoilers, Belle Gibson did not, in fact, have cancer. And she'd also, uh, dis- you know, had claimed to be giving a portion of her profits from the book and the app to charity. And it turned out she'd given almost nothing at all. And actually, the charity angle was kind of her undoing, because I think people were a bit hesitant to be like, do you really have cancer? But journalists checked with the charity she claimed to have donated to, and they found nothing had been donated. And yeah, her whole story just sort of unraveled from there. Absolutely. And in May this year, it was reported that she owed more than 500,000 Australian dollars in fines, penalties and charged interest over her behaviour. So I looked into that and she received $440,000 for her app and for her cookbook, but she only donated about $10,000 to charity in the end. So from a charity point of view, there actually isn't a lot you can do about this kind of fraud where people claim to be collecting for a charity or a more nebulous good cause. Beyond, you know, being alert for people using your name, uh, communicating really clearly to donors all the ways that you can prove you're a legitimate charity. And then if something doesn't look right, you know, making sure that people feel able to challenge and question it. But also, what about those kinds of fraud where charities themselves are the victims? Sadly, that isn't uncommon. And and charities are really susceptible to this kind of diversion fraud, you know, which is kind of what we're talking about here. The other angle of it is where money intended for them never makes it. Um, and, you know, because, and they're susceptible to this because unlike businesses, they don't always know that money should be on its way to them. You know, like we said, some people just set up fundraisers and it takes off. They didn't. They don't need to ask the charity for permission for that, and it makes total sense that they wouldn't. Absolutely, and there's lots of other stuff which is kind of facilitated by the digital world that we all live in now. So the charity finance group makes a really interesting point about domain name fraud. Um, they did a search on a domain name website, and they found that some variations of major charity domain names are available for purchase at relatively modest sums. And for context, that's less than 20 quid. So in theory, someone could purchase one of those domains, they could deck it out to look exactly like your website, and then they could start directing your donors to make their donations there. 
And you wouldn't know, right? You would think, oh, I'm going to the website. This looks legit. It sounds good. Yeah, you, you would you would think you were doing that. So what can charities do about that? Well, of course, the CFG said they weren't advocating that every charity should purchase, you know, all of the possible variations <laughs> that could be used by a fraudster. So you don't have to rush out and do that. But it did suggest that charities introduce a strategy to monitor the availability and the use of this kind of domain name. So if a variant was to suddenly become unavailable for purchase, that might mean that a fraudster was about to use it. And that means that the charity could, say, take action to look into this. They could warn potential donors and so on and so forth. So that's another potential opening there. And on top of that, charities are also often the victims of fraud of extraction. Or in layman's terms, that's just plain speaking, theft directly from the charity. Right. So rather than money never making it, it's where money is taken from you. Um, and yeah, so charities can get targeted by the same sorts of scams that affect individuals. So where, for example, people are tricked into transferring money directly into thieves' bank accounts. You know, and sometimes for charities, fraudsters will get in touch pretending to be a supplier and sort of saying, oh, you know, our bank account details have changed. And, you know, please put your money into our account rather than the legitimate supplier's account. Um, but sometimes it's much more sophisticated than that. You're completely right. And it, it's quite alarming how sophisticated frauds like this, you know, phishing frauds can be these days. A lot of the time, um, I, I've seen a trend in, in the last year where it's kind of people ringing up pretending to be your bank itself. And they have so many clever ways of making this seem plausible. And if you are unfortunate enough to lose money as a result of a scam like this, a lot of the time there can be relatively little protection from banks to help you recoup any lost income that you might have had once that is gone. It's really tricky. Yeah, really scary. And yeah, so in terms of kind of these really sophisticated scams, um, back in 2014, I was working at FE Week, which is um, trade publication for like colleges, sixth forms, apprenticeship providers. And there was a rash of these kind of scams targeting colleges. Um, and of course, colleges are charities, but they're sort of accepted charities. They're, they're regulated slightly differently. So I had access to a forum of college finance officers who were discussing their experiences. And there was this one absolutely fabulous woman. And unfortunately, I forget which college she was from. But it was somewhere relatively rural. And and so the college had been targeted by a scammer who had tried this numerous times at different colleges. And I think he'd had some success previously. But so what he would do was ring up the finance department, claiming to be a bailiff on the way to the college to collect £7,000, which he said the college owed to a fictional company. They hadn't paid their debt. Bailiffs are coming. We're going to take the money. He then says to the college, because obviously the college finance officer goes, oh, I've never heard anything about this. This is terrible. He says, well, look, I can get you a temporary suspension order while this issue is resolved if the college hands over £4,000 over the phone for me to sort this out. And we can we can have some time and sort it out. And when it happened to this one particular finance officer, she was brilliant because she was just having none of it. She was like, okay, great. Let me know when you're at the gates. I'll get a parking permit sorted out for you. Like She's just like, yeah, come, come take our stuff. It's fine. Um, and this guy keeps ringing her back, pretending that he's getting closer and closer to the college and trying to pressure her to pay this money. Like, give me this money and it'll go away. I'm coming. I'm coming off the motorway. <laughs> and she just keeps giving him directions and like explaining the easiest route to the college and warning him not to miss the signs and so on. Because like I said, I think it was fairly rural, so it's quite hard to get to. And yeah, apparently in the end, he just gave up in frustration um, and just... <laughs> And she just said on the forum, like, oh, I'm still waiting for him to arrive. He's kind of permanently suspended going around a ring road somewhere on <laughs> yeah. the phone, just going, I really mean it this time. I really am coming <laughs> if you don't give me the £4,000. But yeah, apparently, I think I think he kind of like shouted at her and just gave up, uh, which was great. 
Oh, that's amazing. What a great tactic. Um, but yeah, so, so these things can be sophisticated and they can be scary if someone calls you up and says, you owe me X, Y, Z, but we can make it go away. I can completely see why someone might, you know, fall into that net. Um, even trickier than external scams can be when you see fraud perpetrated by someone within the charity itself, which is not uncommon by any stretch. So, um, in fact, the Charity Finance Group did a report on countering fraud, and they published that a while ago. It was in 2016. But it did estimate that one in 10 charities said they had been victims of fraud in the past year. And around that, you know, two thirds of those frauds did originate externally, but a third were committed by employers or by volunteers. And sort of more recently, the Charity Commission estimates that charities lost almost 8.6 million to fraud last year, with figures from Action Fraud showing that 1,059 separate incidents of fraud were reported by charities between April 2020 and March 2021. But the Commission says the true figure is likely to be much higher because fraud is typically underreported. Definitely. And there are other studies that show the figures really could be a lot higher. Uh, The 2019 annual fraud indicator, which is published by the accountancy firm Crow, estimated that internal fraud had cost the charity sector about £2.5 billion a year. And in the 2021 edition of the report, it estimated that as a result of the pandemic, there had been a 19.8% increase in fraud in England and Wales. Now, that's according to data from the Office for National Statistics. And even in the past week, so after we decided we were going to talk about this topic on this week's podcast, we've seen two insider fraud cases come to our attention in as many days. Um, So first up, we had Jaswant Singh Kang, who's also known as Jake Kang and Jake Elliott of Marina Close, Bournemouth. Uh, He was jailed for four years after pleading guilty to fraudulently diverting almost £120,000 from a charity into an online bank account he set up in his mother's name. Blimey. Yeah. Um, And the 38-year-old was employed as an accountant's assistant at a South Staffordshire Housing Association, so a social landlord based in Stafford. Uh, So he worked there between November 2018 and March 2019. So actually quite a short period of time. Um, And basically what he did was change the bank account details on a supplier's account to divert £118,000 into an account he'd set up online in his mum's name. And to enable that fraud, he was like altering remittance advice slips to include a different address so the supplier didn't receive notification of the payment, that sort of thing. Um, And as a result, the fraud wasn't actually discovered until he left the organisation and then the the payments were then chased by the supplier. Nightmare. And that's nearly £120,000. Not an insubstantial amount of money. Yeah, in like, what, less than six months. Blimey. Um, Yes, and then we also reported on the case of Amanda Arkless of Eatwick in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. So she was found guilty of fraud by false representation at St Albans Crown Court and jailed for three years over her involvement in defrauding more than £2 million from a religious charity. So the 54-year-old became involved with someone called Stephen Ashton, who is an employee of the religious charity Morris Corello World Evangelism in 2013. Ashton was convicted of defrauding the charity of more than £2 million in 2017. And the court heard that Arkless took advantage of Ashton over a period of four years, as she believed him to be a very wealthy man. And she received more than £800,000 from him in the form of electronic transfers directed to her bank account and other gifts between December 2013 and August 2017. After he was convicted, 
She attempted to hide her part in the fraud by claiming that she had been paid by him as a marketing consultant, and she moved the criminal proceeds from one account to another, even using a safety deposit box in one instance to hide the money right, from and, the police. Like I said, those are just in the past week, those two stories have come up. And you know, if you search our website, there's about 20 stories this year alone. So we're talking almost to a month, you know, relating to allegations of fraud within the sector. And yeah, you know, what makes it onto our site is only ever going to be the tip of, of the iceberg. You know, and as the Charity Commission was saying, it's it's really difficult to get a sense of how much fraud is going on in the sector. Yeah, partly because there is fraud that charities aren't even aware of yet. But also, I think historically, it's been quite difficult to get charities to talk about the fraud they've experienced. Um, So back in 2016, um, I wrote a feature about uh, sort of looking at fraud in the sector. And it was really difficult to find anyone willing to chat to us as a case study about their own experiences. There was just this real, almost like shame or fear about admitting that it had happened to them and about talking about how it happened. Um, and in the end, I ended up speaking to one of the Cambridge University colleges, I think it was Pembroke. Um, and they're a charity, but they're accepted like colleges and they're re- regulated differently. So I think they were a bit more willing to talk because they weren't a charity charity, quote unquote. So I was speaking to them about their experience of having a finance officer steal 286 thousand pounds from the organization um so her fraud was done by duplicating invoices and filling in her own bank details on the second one so people would just not notice that this money got out twice and yeah like i said i think the, the charity commission has in the past had this same problem that charities used to feel that they couldn't admit what had happened or ask for help and i think it is something the commission has put a lot of work into over the last few years to encourage charities to come forward Right. So in 2018, the Commission produced a research report on the effects of insider fraud. It put out a call for information and it got 54 responses from both small and large charities. Of course, the Commission said this was not a large enough sample to be representative. But it said that the responses can provide an evidence base from which some meaningful inferences could be derived. So the report found that 43% of insider fraud was committed by an employee, 33% by a trustee, 10% by a volunteer and 10% by someone else related to the charity. When asked what factors had contributed to the fraud occurring, 43% of responses suggested that the prime factor was excessive trust or responsibility placed on one individual. 24% cited a lack of challenge or oversight. Another quarter said it was due to either absence of controls or existing controls being poorly applied. And 5% said it was due to a combination of more than one factor. Right. And when asked about the impact that this insider fraud had had on the charity, respondents said the consequences had included a detrimental impact on beneficiaries through reduced service provision, loss of funding or income, an adverse effect on the charity's reputation and damage to team or organisational morale. And sadly, in one case, the charity was forced to close as a result. So clearly, fraud can have a real and devastating consequence for charities themselves. That is so awful that a charity had to close as a result of this. Really, really grim. So what can charities do to protect themselves from this fraud? Well, the Charity Finance Group's Countering Fraud Guide points out that as a result of the sheer diversity of funding and operations that exists within the sector, an individual charity will have to examine its own context and identify its own specific fraud risks. So there's really no one-size-fits-all case here. Every charity is going to be different. But the CFG says that charities should take a proactive approach to fraud, treating it like any other business cost, to be managed and to be minimised. In the past, it says that fraud used to be treated reactively, so basically waiting for something to happen, attempting to recoup the loss and seek prosecution. But now that is starting to change. 
Yeah, which I think is is really important that, that charities are starting to think about that. And there is loads and loads of guidance on the Charity Commission website on protecting charities from fraud and financial harm. And obviously that is mostly aimed at trustees, but obviously there are steps there that staff can also use and, and can be aware of. Absolutely. So what does the Commission recommend? I mean, well, it starts with reviewing your financial controls at appropriate intervals. They suggest possibly annually and, and, and to do so critically, keeping them up to date It points out that just because you haven't been a victim of fraud yet, you shouldn't assume that it will never happen. And of course, it may be that it has happened and you just haven't spotted it yet as well. And it also warns that charities should segregate duties. So not allowing one or two people to be in charge of or unchecked for all aspects of your charity's financial controls. It also says that charities should make sure that all the separate parts of their financial records agree with each other. So this is things like always ask for and keep your receipts, reconcile your bank statements with invoices you know, receipts, your purchase and your payment authorizations, And this will often help to identify fraud at an early stage and may discourage potential fraudsters as well. The Commission also warns against weakening your financial security for the sake of shortcuts or time saving. So, for example, do not pre-sign blank checks, even if a second signature is required, because doing so reduces your check security by 50%. Or to put it another way, it doubles the risk. Right. And it also recommends keeping a list or a register of valuable fixed assets and key charity property and periodically inspecting them, um, which suggests that things are just going missing and nobody notices for a long time, is, is what that implies. So yeah, keep, keep an eye on your stuff, guys, I guess. And then ensuring that electronic or online banking arrangements are secure and that they're protected with dual level authorization. So again, not one person is in charge of this. And when you're recruiting staff especially those who handle the charity's finances, the Commission says to make appropriate background checks and take up references. If your charity makes grants to beneficiaries or other organisations, carry out appropriate due diligence checks on applicants to ensure that money is definitely going where it's supposed to. Right. And they also talk about ensuring that trustees receive and consider regular reporting information about the charity's finances. The Commission also suggests thinking about maybe appointing a dedicated fraud officer on the board as somebody that you know has oversight of this. And it also says that if you're a trustee or a manager, make sure that you understand the financial summaries and reports that are presented to you. And if you don't, ask for an explanation that you can understand. And I think that's a, just, just a really important one of saying, look, it's OK if you don't get it make sure that you do make sure that you can you are given it in a way that makes sense to you so that you're on top of this thing um because i think it's very easy to get bamboozled by financial just yeah materials terms what is this list of numbers showing me what should i be spotting um you know on a similar note the commission also talks about encouraging staff and volunteers to raise concerns and making sure that everyone in the organization knows what to do or who to tell if they suspect or become aware of fraud and you know perhaps charities should consider fraud awareness training to help with this it suggests absolutely and ultimately the commission says that fraud awareness needs to be part of the culture in your charity prompt and appropriate action will help to protect your organization and to limit any financial damage And of course, charities should report suspected fraud to the Charity Commission and to Action Fraud. So we will put links to the article on the Third Sector website uh, to both the reporting pages for the Commission and to Action Fraud. And we will also link out to all the guidance that we've mentioned. It's a big and complicated world out there for, for fraud. Listeners will gather just from this episode alone. There's just so many different facets to fraud. There's so much going on. And I do, I just want to repeat this, this, this thing about this unease within the sector. And I think it is that, that fear of admitting that we've got something wrong or it hasn't gone right. Actually, you know, 
from all of our evidence out there, there is so much of this stuff going on. It can happen to anybody. It's very easy to fall for. And it's you know, it's not necessarily your fault. And it is about reporting it, making sure we've got a measure of, of what's happening and seeing if we can take some remedy and prevent it happening again. We're all human. We're all human. Each week, we are bringing you our good news bulletin with a positive or a quirky story that we've spotted in the sector. What do you got today, Rebecca? Okay, first up, not really such good news, if we're honest, because it is about a a law that may be coming in that is really problematic. But it's such a great campaign that I saw on Twitter and loved. So the charity Freedom From Torture have arrested Paddington Bear. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a great sentence to be able to say. Um, So uh, the government is putting forward a a nationality and borders bill, which will criminalise refugees who arrive as stowaways hidden on boats and lorries. And Freedom From Torture is arguing that this means that under the law, everyone's favourite marmalade-loving bear would be criminalised for arriving in a boat from deepest, darkest Peru, as we all know that he did. Um, So to kind of raise awareness of this and to kind of point out that what they see is the the, the real problems in the law, Freedom From Torture staged an arrest, complete with, like, immigration officer mannequins of the Paddington Bear statue in Paddington Station. Um, So, yes, they were seeking to raise awareness of the impact of the law and spread the word that no one should be criminalised for fleeing to safety. Um, And it's just, it's such a brilliant campaign. There's a great video. It's, yeah, we'll pop the, the the video in the story on our website but i just i love these clever bright informative campaigns that are just yeah really making it relevant to people um so yeah so that's my one for today what have you got well uh i would like to give a massive shout out to the former rugby league international player kevin sinfield who this week raised more than a million pounds for charity with another adesian fundraising challenge this week sinfield ran a whopping 101 miles from leicester to leeds to raise money for research into motor neuron disease i'm not sure if you will remember this because we did actually cover it last year but um sinfield's former rugby league teammate and his great friend rob burrow was diagnosed with the disease in december 2019 so last year sinfield ran seven marathons in seven days to support people living with mnd and he raised 2.7 million pounds in the process which i think for many people would go this is this is i have done my feet i have raised 2.7 million pounds Yep, I've done my I've done my thing, but not Kevin. Clearly not. <laughs> yeah, so Kevin wanted to go one further in 2021, and so this week he ran from the rugby union side Leicester Tigers to Sinfield's old home stadium up in Leeds, and he completed this run in 24 hours without sleep, which is the equivalent of just under four marathons. I honestly just want to get into the fetal position. Um, just thinking about this, I just no. It's incredible. Again, it makes my five kilometres look very shabby, doesn't it? Really? <laughs> I mean, I wanted to say that, but then I thought, well, I haven't actually run five kilometres, so I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure who I am to be saying that. So no, I'll own it. I also, I also, you know, I say I ran it. I staggered most of it, you know. So he ran a hundred and one miles and set out to raise a hundred thousand pounds, and. As of the day of recording, the total currently stands at more than £1.5 million, which is going to be split between the MND Association and a Leeds Hospital Charity Appeal to build a new care centre. And it is amazing. It's incredible. And the loveliest thing was seeing him cross the finish line in Leeds and to see Rob there 
waiting for him at the end of the line. So, Kevin Sinfield, you've done it again. Congratulations. Please have a very warm bath now. That is absolutely staggering and, yeah, a phenomenal achievement. Well, that's that's all from us this week. Uh, we'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. And a massive thank you to our producer, Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. Um, from us, remember to check your Instagram challenges if you ever decide you want to do one. And we will see you next week. Next week.